I'm going to record an intro separately, so no more of that weird twiddling your thumbs when I'm doing all the performative <laughs> stuff. Uh, we'll just kick off. All right, welcome. It's Dermot back again on the topic of health. And today I'll be joined by RISE researcher Diana O'Dwyer to discuss the ills of the Irish Health Service. The discussion will be loosely based around an article that Diana wrote for the latest issue of Rupture Magazine. I'd encourage people to pick up a copy of that if they haven't and we'll leave a link in the episode description. We're coming up to the Christmas break now, so if anyone is feeling the Christmas spirit, they can consider chipping in on our Patreon, which allows us to keep the show going. Alright, I'm joined at the line by Rise Researcher and Rupture Radio regular at this stage, Diana O'Dwyer. Hello, Diana. Hello. So, just to get into the article, you open by stating that the Irish Health Service is in a state of permanent crisis. And while its scale and intensity and the level of media attention to it wax and wane, the condition is chronic and seemingly incurable. What are the issues inherent to the Irish healthcare system? Well, I think probably the first most obvious one is just the massive waiting lists and waiting times for everything. Um, no matter what it is, whether you're going to A&E or if you need to get an operation done, um, there's always going to be just huge waiting lists and waiting times. Um, like if you add up all the different waiting lists the HSE has at the moment they actually have like five or six different types of waiting lists like inpatient outpatient plan procedure you know and you add them all up it's about a million people nearly that are on waiting lists Um, so you're talking about you know one in six of the population of the whole country Um, and the situation is so bad like that the the HSE actually has targets for waiting lists where they have a target that no one should be waiting more than 15 months for a procedure which is just crazy like no one should ever have to wait anything remotely like that long and like the norm now is about six months for public hospital treatment Um, and like that's just completely unacceptable and the reason why this is happening basically is that um, waiting times and waiting lists are the main way that the HSC kind of rations access to the healthcare system because there just isn't enough invested in the healthcare system. There isn't enough healthcare to go around. So therefore they have to come up with some way of rationing it. And the way they do it is by sticking you on a waiting list. Um, It's actually, it's even with GPs now as well. There's not enough funding for GPs either. So it's often difficult to get your name down on a GP practice. Like they won't accept new patients, especially if you're on the medical card or you might have to wait a week for an appointment. So it's this constant kind of rationing of healthcare that you see all across the public healthcare system at the moment. Yeah. So in the article, you discuss the various reasons why things have gotten this bad from underinvestment and uh, inequality to a historically weak and uninvolved state. What's been the nature of this flawed approach? Well, I think what we're seeing now at the moment um, with COVID um, in particular is the outcome of just decades of a completely underfunded healthcare system. Um, And because it's so underfunded, everything is just absolutely stretched to the Mm. max. The staff are stretched to the max. Resources are stretched to the max. There's just no fat in the system at all. So if there's any additional pressure, any additional crisis, the system just can't cope. And they just have to start cancelling stuff. So you can see it like in the first wave of COVID, um, they just said, right, we're going to cancel all elective Mm. procedures. 
and like elective kind of makes it sound like it's some kind of optional surgery like that you don't really need but it just means it's not completely urgent it's like heart surgery that you need to get done in the next six months rather than immediately but you still need to have that heart surgery so it's not like kind of optional cosmetic procedures or cancelling it's everything and like they didn't do that in european countries that have properly funded healthcare systems like say in germany or finland they're able to be a lot more selective about what parts of the healthcare system they closed down and what they kept open um so like i think that's really one result of just the fact that we have this totally underfunded healthcare system that's never had funding on a par with other european countries so um and then on top of that you've had like waves of cuts during the periodic economic crisis that ireland has like you know every so often there's a a boom and a bust or even just a bigger bust like mm. um in the 80s and again um, after the 2008 crash there were just massive cuts to the healthcare system um, from which it never recovered and accompanying these often there is the kind of mirror image of cuts to the public system which is an expansion of the private system and making the whole healthcare system even more unequal than it already was um, so i suppose like the core of this is a kind of a, a misallocation of, of healthcare spending um, people often have like a perception that loads of money is being spent in health and that it's a black hole, you know, like yeah. politicians would even talk about like that as if, oh, we're firing all this money into health and it's just really inefficient. Um, and they complain that that's about like inefficiency of the public sector. And really, it's kind of just a smokescreen for the real problem, which is that you have a massive misallocation of resources because money has been allocated um, on the basis of who can pay for healthcare um, rather than who needs healthcare the most, who is mm. the sickest in a context where there's not enough funding overall, you know? Um, so like that, that's the, a huge part um, of the problem, which you have a combination of underinvestment and then this misallocation of resources. So to just give like the most kind of straightforward, like kind of core example of this in the system is that um, public patients don't get treated in time. So you somebody who's a bit sick, who has to wait months and months and years to get treated. And then by the time that they get treated, they're really, really sick and it's much more expensive to treat them. And at the same time, you have people who are less sick, but who are able to pay for private treatment and skipping the queue and also getting better healthcare, more access mm. to consultants, people who are specialized in their illness, um, rather than being treated by a junior doctor and getting a few minutes with a consultant, you know, if you're lucky. Um, and that's really a big part of why you have all this spending going in, but you're not getting you know, the, the good healthcare results that you would want. And the answer to that is basically a single tier universal healthcare where you have more money being invested, but crucially you have it being allocated properly um, to, you know, where it's most needed rather than who can pay the most. Yeah, just before getting to the to the benefits of approaching it in a, or trying to build a, a single tier national health service, you in the piece kind of go through uh, the history of failed attempts. And in doing so, you make reference to May Van Wren's critical history of healthcare in Ireland, unhealthy state. What's the content of this commentary and what have been the main blocks to meaningful change in the past? Yeah, like that's it's a really good book, actually. I'd really recommend it for anyone who kind of wants to dig a little deeper into like why the healthcare system is the way it is. Like, and, you know, everybody kind of knows it's really bad and there's all these problems, mm. but people don't really know, like, why can't we fix it? You know, so you have this idea that like, oh, it's just inherently inefficient or something. 
you know, and it doesn't no matter what we do, we can't fix it, which is kind of in the interests of the establishment politicians that people have this perception that the health system has just been this basket case. But actually, like there have been loads of attempts to reform it over decades. And what Mae Van Ren does is um, go through all of these different histories of failed attempts at reforming the system. Um, and like the most famous one would be Noel Brown and the mother and child scheme. Um, but there was other attempts as well that would have been blocked kind of by the same coalition of interests. So typically you'd have, um, say, consultants and GPs as well um, who'd be opposed to universal health care because it means that they would end up as kind of public servants on public contracts just being paid a salary rather than being able to make a load of money off being paid on a fee per service basis, um, which is what they get in a private system. They get paid for per each patient and all the different procedures they're performing rather than just having a salary. So they're opposed to um, a single tier system. And then increasingly you have like private healthcare interests. You've got your Dennis O'Briens of the world who own a load of private hospitals and obviously they don't want a single tier system. And then especially historically, you had the Catholic church as one of the main providers of health. And they had this kind of moral opposition to um, public um, healthcare and because they thought that this took away from healthcare being provided as a charity and therefore being kind of like good works that good Catholics would provide, (laughs) you know, and that, you know, their religious orders could do, they could deal with the poor and they'd get brownie pints with God, I suppose, at the same time, you know, you wouldn't (laughs) have this opportunity for moral enrichment, you know, if it was just being provided as a public service. Um, But I think that kind of rationale has gone a bit um, because Catholic Church is a lot less powerful but you still do have like Catholic church institutions that own quite a lot of private hospitals and they would have a financial interest there, you know, along with the other private healthcare providers as well. So you had this kind of coalition and then them all being backed up by, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who historically kind of represent the interests of um, the capitalist class, but also the kind of professional classes, you know, yeah. like GPs and consultants. You can even see it there with Varadkar and his, you know, passing on with the new GB contract to his, you know, um, GP mate. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he's had lots of health ministers. He's been doctors. James Riley as well was another Fine Gael health minister, you know. It's convenient for the government to have religious orders step in, but you also, like, equaling that resistance is now the private healthcare industry on the other side. But the establishment parties have made it for a long time their policy to pursue a two-tier system uh, and to buffet that and promote it in in some kind of mangled uh, lines about freedom of choice or independent choice in, in the matter which is kind of an americanism uh, anyway it kind of seeps through what has been the like approach of these parties up to this point in relation to healthcare and the current governments like having private healthcare is sort of it's a win-win situation for the main establishment parties and the interests they represent because Um, If you've got more of it being provided privately, then there's less of a need for public investment. You can have a smaller state. And at the same time, there's all of these profit making opportunities for the whole private healthcare industry and for, you know, doctors and consultants and and all those kind of class interests that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael represent. Um, So fundamentally, they've been representing those interests in in government. And then you've also had like even interests from developers and Mm. um, so on in building this whole infrastructure of private health as well and building hospitals and primary care centres, getting loads of tax breaks that have been brought in um, by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael um, finance ministers as well. 
Um, so like they've had to kind of repeatedly play lip service to the idea of yeah. reforming the whole system because it's a really popular thing. Um, universal free public health care, like the vast majority of people want it. And it's one of, it was the biggest issue, I think, um, in the last general election. You know, so it's not that people don't want it. So in some way, they have to kind of try and so-called balance that public demand for that with the actual class interest behind the private healthcare system, yeah. which means kind of like um, saying you're going to bring in reforms, but doing it in a really kind of piecemeal way and allowing kind of big reform plans like Sláinte Care to kind of get mauled in the implementation. And like that was actually one thing I could really see when I was reading Mayvan Wren's book about um healthcare was like typically what happens is you get this big reform plan and then they'll just say oh we'll just implement this little bit of it like really slowly over 10 or 20 years and then you know it doesn't actually make any difference and they'll just pick out bits that they can make money out of or you know um so like I, I think a really good example of this kind of relationship actually between the establishment parties and kind of the medical profession there was some of the text messages were released between Varadkar and Matthew O'Toole from the NAGP about the new GP contract um, and basically the the GPs at the time that Matthew O'Toole represented in the NAGP they were threatening that they were going to go and campaign against yeah. Fianna Gael in the general election you know and like Varadkar's text says who will they campaign for? Sinn Féin and leftists want you all on salaries and not big ones. Maybe 60K. <laughs> Labour wants free GP for everyone within a few years. Foot and shoot spring to mind. <laughs> you know, and like that's just, you know, as clear as day. They're like, we're representing your class interests, you know. Um, so I think that's basically um, what has been um, going on like over decades. Yeah, it's clear where the allegiances kind of lie. But that has to do, I think we'll get into it later, but you also mentioned it later in the piece that that has to do with kind of the economic situation that a lot of people coming out of med school find themselves in, in that they're in massive debt. So they're not looking to maximize profits, whether that's for out of like some selfish interest, but it is the reality that like you're coming out saddled with debt. Uh, so you may turn to that. Just before we move on um, off the kind of religious orders, you highlight in the article that prior to independence, some healthcare services were independently funded by the Catholic Church. But for most of the 20th century, the state has heavily subsidized the provision of healthcare by religious orders rather than investing in universal public health service. What role do these religious orders play in the provision of healthcare currently? Because I think many would see it that that's died out. But if you look at the ownership or even some of the structures, it's kind of astonishing the role they still play yeah like um there's a huge outsourcing budget in general from the hsc every year like in their annual report they have a big list of like all the grants they give to different organizations mm -hmm. i think it's about five billion of their budget is outsourced like to um ngos or for-profit providers like home care companies and stuff like that and like it's well over a billion of that going to um catholic organizations um and like it's stuff you wouldn't think of uh, as well. Like a lot of the major hospitals are still Catholic hospitals, yeah. like the Matter Hospital and St. Vincent's. Like you'd usually kind of just think of them as just being like a public hospital, but actually they're not. They're still owned um, by religious orders. And because of that, um, although the influence of the Catholic Church in general has waned a lot in terms of healthcare. Um, they can still make decisions to some extent around what kind of services they're going to provide and not provide. Um, so, for example, um, in Vincent's, they weren't doing like um, long term sterilization operations like vasectomies or tubal ligations. Right. And like you couldn't get the 
the pill in the pharmacy in the matter hospital you know just really yeah. backward stuff like that you know um, and, and obviously they're not going to be stepping up to provide you know trans healthcare or you know IVF in the future or any or anything like that and I suppose it's an issue in terms of um, that Catholic ethos is having an influence on where services are provided rather than where they're needed or where you know the public health system might decide that these services should be provided in those hospitals but they can't because they're still under church control to that extent what's actually happening at the moment as well is that like a lot of the religious orders are literally dying off so they don't okay. have you know a new generation of nuns say to take over running the hospital so what they're doing is kind of setting up um, private charitable trusts that are run by kind of lay catholic ultras um, <laughs> who will be just as religious you know if not more into the future um, but there won't be nuns like overtly running these institutions so that was one of the problems around the whole setup with the national maternity hospital going to be built on land owned by the sisters of charity and and so on is that issue of passing over to um kind of lay catholic trusts so there will be this kind of ongoing catholic influence like at a, yeah, a kind of a lower yeah. level in the system through kind of catholic ngos like a lot of disability services and stuff are still run um by catholic organizations and then um actually one of the biggest private healthcare providers um is catholic as well you know the, uh, the largest private hospital group actually in the state mm. is owned by the Bon Secours nuns, who were the ones who used to run the mother and baby homes in Tume and so on. So it really is amazing that they're still um, in charge of healthcare to that extent. But now it's um, very much a, a private money making operation. I mean, probably was in the past too. Yeah. But the, they have five private hospitals Limerick, Cork, Dublin, Galway, and Tralee, an annual turnover of 230 million. So it's big business for them, just Absolutely. like it is for, you know, Larry Goodman and Dennis O'Brien and all who own a lot of the private hospitals, you know. Just as in as insane as the kind of ownership by religious orders, you also highlight the growing role that like NGO style providers have at the moment and are, and in some ways that they've become like extensions of the state and th that the state are happy for them to move into this role. What's the nature of these providers and what problems arise by outsourcing healthcare in this way? Yeah. Like, I think it's really a key part of um, the kind of neoliberal mm. approach to the state and management of public services is that you have this outsourcing of public health services so rather than the hse providing these services directly they um, give grants to ngos to do it um, and there's like a number of different problems from that like from the point of view of like services being provided but also for workers rights and workers terms yeah. and conditions because the workers um, in ngos like are not um, classed as public servants a lot of the time if they're in what's called a section 39 organization which is a big chunk of health ngos that are funded by the government they're not public servants if they're in some of the bigger ones that are called section 30 38s they are um, so there's actually industrial action being taken by section 39 health ngo workers at the moment that's ongoing um, for the last number of weeks mm -hmm. around the country to try and get pay restored to the levels they were pre-2008 they're still being left behind um other um health workers who are in the public yeah. sector um, they just wouldn't have the same kind of conditions but then from the, the point of view of providing the services as well is that it becomes much more of a kind of a hodgepodge of a, a lack of integration so yeah. often with the different ngos will have been some person will have seen that say there's no provision for you know counseling around suicide in my area um so i'm going to set up an ngo to deal with that yeah. and that's great they can individually be very good but it means that you're relying on 
somebody having set up an NGO in your area. There's no kind of overall yeah. plan. And then some NGOs could be really good, but then others might be not so good. Um, and there's no kind of quality control. And you also have this kind of duplication of services, you know, with you can have loads of different NGOs in one area, um, like in relation to suicide, famously, there was a huge amount of NGOs um, in that one area. But then in another area where there's a big need, there mightn't be any services being provided and it's not, you know, properly geographically distributed across the country or anything like that. And then another thing is that it fits into this kind of mindset that this is a sort of a charitable service mm. rather than it's a, a healthcare, public healthcare service that's been provided to all, everybody living in the country um, as a right. Um, and what we've seen in recessions is that it's a lot easier for the government to cut funding to NGOs than it is to cut public healthcare funding. So you could actually look back at all the cuts um, after the last crisis and services that were run by NGOs were cut much more heavily. They just yeah. totally cut off all funding. Um, whereas there's some limitations in how much cuts they could do to stuff that was more integrated, like in part of the public health system. So there's a few different um, problems related to that, I think, um, which again is, is something that can be addressed if you were to have a proper universal public health service, you could integrate you know, all of the good services that are being provided by different NGOs and provide much better terms and conditions for the workers and have a much more integrated overall plan um, for the health service that way. Yeah, I think it's it's all connected. It is um, kind of astonishing how much this benefits the state in that they can fracture the system down in this way, hide some of the ownership, whether it comes to religious orders, and then undermine NGOs in another way, um, but still argue for like immense spend that they're spending immensely on the health service, um, and then the, the benefits are completely cut off. You would think that like having a bigger system that covers more, you'd achieve like kind of economies of scale, scale in some way. You'd actually have oversight in what's being covered and what needs to be covered. Um, but in this way, it just seems so fractured. I think there's like four different sections that you outline in the piece, like some are covered by religious orders, some by NGOs, um, and then some are subsidized, are covered by subsidized private health care. And this is often framed as like taking pressure off the public system. But you go through in the piece that like in examining subsidies like the National Treatment Purchase Fund or NTPF, you show that it's like kind of far from the truth and it in fact undermines it. What is the nature of these funds and their relationship to the public health care or private health care system? Yeah, like I think the National Treatment Purchase Fund is a really good example because like even though it's like it's a relatively um, small amount of money in terms of the overall scale of the system, like it kind of illustrates the kind of backwards logic from the point of view of actual optimal provision of healthcare. Like basically, if you're on a public waiting list for a really long time, you mm. can eventually get referred to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, whereby the state will pay for you to get treated um, in a private hospital. Um, so over time, all that money that they're given to private hospitals to treat people because they've been waiting for ages is not being invested in the public system and actually improving the public system and you know, getting rid of the need for you to wait for ages before you get sent to a private hospital. Um, so it's very self-defeating from the point of view of the public system. Um, but it's something that's very popular, obviously, with the private healthcare system because yeah. you know you're getting an influx of funding in, um, and it's kind of like an easy fix. The government can come along and say, "Oh, we're going to give X amount extra money to the National Treatment Purchase Fund," and they can like cut however many thousand people off waiting lists in one go um, by doing that. Um, 
But I mean, another problem with it, which is also quite characteristic of the private healthcare system in general, is that it will only pay for certain procedures. And these are typically kind of more simple operations that are more profitable for the private healthcare system. So stuff like cataracts and hip replacements, but they're not going to do like really complex cancer treatment for you or, you know, uh, more complex heart operations like that kind of stuff is more expensive. Um, it's chronic illnesses that cost a load of money to be managed over a long time. Yeah. And that's all just still can only be done in the public health system so it's kind of portrayed as like a solution but it's you know just really a, a band-aid um, on yeah. the system and that kind of makes the problem worse at the same time as it seems to be fixing it yeah so so given the like the absolute mess of a system and the quite powerful interests that have a stake in it you state that like without a, a strategy to defeat the powerful interests or even to just confront them that uh, universal healthcare or single tier Irish health national health service is unlikely to be achieved. Look, what is the best strategy, and how best can socialists go about changing the system? Like we would have, I would have talked with Chris Carroll recently, and he would have raised the issues with um, something like Slauncher Care, which seeks to like be a kind of technocratic fix to what is like a social problem or has more to do with the structure of the entire system. So, how best? can we go about or like how best can you go about confronting some of these issues yeah i mean i think that's really a good point like because you've had loads of plans for how to reform the system and how to get to universal healthcare, but the trouble is that there isn't the the social weight behind these plans and um with launcher care um i was actually a researcher for mick barry the mm. socialist party and solidarity utd when he was on the future of healthcare committee that drew up the staunch care proposals back in 2017 and like there was loads of good proposals in there like we didn't fully support it um mm. because basically because it, it failed to recognize the central political problem with this which is that you've got a really strong coalition of class interests who are opposed to any moves towards universal healthcare. And you can't get around them. You can't dodge them. And that's kind of what Slaunch Care tried to do. Like they said, like, oh, we'll take private care out of public hospitals, but we leave private hospitals there. Um, and we'll try and just gradually, you know, introduce a, a public only hospital system kind of um, over time by like, we'll just have, you know, public only contracts in future for consultants and stuff like that. But they didn't really take on the central issue you know, which is the coalition of, of class interests who are against universal healthcare. Um, and so I think that's really the main problem that you have to grapple with. And how you would grapple with that is that you need a stronger coalition um, who will take on um, the, that coalition, basically, who are, who are against, against transforming the healthcare system. Um, so if you're looking at, like, who are the people who are going to fight for a universal healthcare system, um, I think you would need big support from the healthcare workers, actual front, frontline healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. um, and in that committee as well, you could see like the different attitudes of like, say, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organization. They want universal free public healthcare. Um, similarly, with workers in the system represented by um, SIP2, like healthcare assistants, home care workers, workers in nursing homes, they would all benefit from having a fully, fully public system where rather than being say on poor terms and conditions as like care workers in private nursing homes they're public servants you know who have decent terms and conditions who have pensions who have a proper career structure all of that they'd have an interest in fighting for a universal healthcare service um and then obviously there's the whole public there's patients there's the million people on waiting lists yeah. have 
an interest in that too. Um, so it's about, you know, bringing that together and like having a vision for a universal um, single tier health service that, that people could fight for. Like, as I mentioned before, like it was the number one issue in the last election. So it's not yeah. like people don't see it as important. And I think it has an even greater importance now that we've all been basically confined to our homes and had our lives massively <laughs> narrowed by the impact of the pandemic. Like people can see how important yeah. it is to have a good healthcare system now. And it's, you know, a really immediate thing for people. Um, so I think now would be, you know, a very good time for um, trade unions and healthcare workers to start to get organized and to think about ways that you can bring together like a struggle for a public healthcare system with a struggle for better workers' rights in the health system. Um, so I think the strike by the nurses last year was uh, a good indication of how you might go in that direction because they were very clear that they were fighting for a better healthcare system as well as better terms and conditions for nurses because really the two things go hand in hand because like you know the vast majority of the healthcare system is healthcare workers and the better conditions they have the better healthcare that's going to be provided as well and the less money that's being you know misallocated to insurance companies profits to profits of um the billionaires who own private hospitals the more can go into paying workers properly and in properly funding the healthcare system you know yeah i think what really came across when i was discussing it with uh Chris Carroll was that similar enough to what people's initial inc- like response to say the climate crisis or healthcare crisis or housing uh, is that we can start to like unravel it bit by bit like incrementally you can chip away at uh, the issues but I think it is slightly naive in that it doesn't recognize that the system the way it's set up whether it's in healthcare or housing uh, is done so because there is like quite uh, powerful interests which have it set up like you touched on there the um, a lot of the hospitals are owned by like Dennis O'Brien or by um, other people and it's it, central to this is uh, is understanding that these interests need to be kind of confronted by a, a bigger coalition I think you can build on that like you you say in the piece that like um, central to the kind of challenge is recognizing that truly universal public health care can only be achieved by eliminating profiteering in health, taking the major private and voluntary healthcare organizations into public ownership to massively expand capacity and ensure a quality of access, separating church and state and democratically transforming the health service. I think in that you can kind of see how like linked a lot of it is and that it needs to be, it needs to be confronted, uh, together or unraveled in as part of the system is there anything else that you want to add and how you go about that yeah i mean a huge part of improving the healthcare system as well as being able to have like a rational plan for the healthcare yeah. system that's based on healthcare needs and who knows about that it's frontline healthcare workers um who should be involved in, in democratically running their own workplaces and in contributing along with patients um representatives um, into devising a plan for the whole system and like this is really an awful lot of what's launch care reforms they kept talking about oh we need this buzzword of integrated care but mm. it's so difficult to integrate all of these different aspects of the system you know because it's outsourced to this charity here this this order of nuns here this private company here and like they're all doing things according to different procedures and you know we don't know how to get them all talking to each other and like the obvious answer is to have like a you know, a universal national health service. Um, So it'd be something on the lines of 
the NHS in the UK when it was originally set up before they started privatizing and outsourcing it to make chop it up and make profit out of it. Um, but crucially, having that really democratic so that you have the feedback coming from patients and from healthcare workers all the time about how to improve it and, you know, where the resources should be going and where they shouldn't be going and um, that you can can do that in, in a rational and, and planned way, um, you know, for the country as a whole. Because I've been thinking about the kind of how healthcare changed in the past and, and I think the NHS is something that people look at and that would have emerged out after the Second World War. Um People have kind of drawn a comparison that you might have a, a, a like a similar uh, series of struggles after the pandemic that people might like emerge and demanding more, looking for more. Uh, do you see that being something that recurs again in the future? Like I know you would have said we had the nurses strike last year, but the pandemic has kind of cut off that momentum. Do you see that re-emerging once we come out of the pandemic or a vaccine gets rolled out? Like people's expectations have been raised by the kind of initial expansion of the state with the COVID pandemic, you know, where you had the pandemic unemployment payment going up to 350 euro um, a week for people who were unemployed. And then you had suddenly taking over the private hospitals, banning evictions, you know, so you could see the kind of dramatic actions that a state could take if you had a left government backed mm. up by powerful movements in society demanding these changes be made. Um, so that's definitely something that I would be hoping for um, once we come out of this pandemic, that people have had a bit of a glimpse of like what yeah. could be possible. Okay, this time, you know, they backed out of um, controlling the private hospitals as quickly as they could, you know, and they only rented them. They didn't take them fully into public ownership. But even the fact that they can just do that, you know, before they would have just kind of said, oh, that's impossible. But like, it's not impossible. It can be done um, when the healthcare needs are great enough. And clearly they are when you've got a million people on waiting lists. There is a crisis of of health already. And if you had a left government um, and strong movements backing it up that were prepared to go for that it's something that that could be possible it's been done before um in the past with the setting up of the national health service in britain after the second world war but i think one mistake that they made was they didn't actually fully nationalize the whole healthcare system like you still had gps are still private and and stuff like that um in the uk and then you have this gradual chipping away of returning more of it to the market again so it's about taking the whole system um, into public ownership, I think. Yeah, and hopefully um, a movement along those lines does does emerge. But um, yeah, I think we can leave that there. That's that's grand. Thanks a million, Diana. All right, cool. Uh, thanks for that. Cheers. All right. Thanks a million for listening, everyone. As I said, more can be found in the episode description, along with a link to the latest issue of Rupture and our Patreon. Thanks a million. Have a nice break. Goodbye. <laughs>